This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So we have a couple of these um, interlude cases that are that are going to drop in here, just so I can use some of the recordings we've had. Now, some of them are related to what we're doing on the season overall, and some of them aren't. This first part, it's not super related. I just have been following this case, and I find it interesting. This, this is this uh, startup. I, I think that you and I have talked about this. I don't think we've talked about it on the podcast, but um, this is a startup called Frank. Do you remember? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't know if it aired, but I do think we covered it. Okay. So this is some news in that case. It came with like a funny uh, article title. Somehow it like landed in my inbox um, from a person sending it to me. Uh, it, the, the article title is from Friday, April 7th. And the title is 30 under 30 year sentences. Why so many of Forbes young heroes face jail time. Uh, it's a guardian article by Arwa Madawi, but this one's about Charlie uh, Javis or Charlie Javis, 31 years old. And she was on the list in 2019 as a tech CEO for Forbes 30 under 30 list, which is where they sort of highlight, you know, successful people. This is hilarious to me. And if we, you know, if you haven't heard about this, this was a huge sale that this young woman made advancing her company, Frank. And Frank was sort of an app slash website slash startup that was going to help people navigate the financial aid process. Uh, on paper, it appeared that it was very successful at doing this. And JP Morgan Chase acquired the company in 2021 for $175 million. And uh, Charlie was made a managing director at J.P. Morgan Chase, which is a huge deal. On LinkedIn, she had said that in four years, Frank had grown to serve over 5 million students at over 6,000 colleges. The article says, it turns out those numbers might have been just a teeny bit exaggerated with a lot of sarcasm. But it actually turns out that it's, uh, it's not just exaggerated, it's actually complete falsehood. So she gets charged on Friday the 7th by the Justice Department with falsely and dramatically inflating the number of customers in her company. It was determined, according to a lawsuit that J.P. Morgan Chase filed, it was determined that Frank only had 300,000 clients. And they had used a data scientist to sort of generate, almost AI style, the rest of their customers, over 4 million, million customers. Extras. <laughs> yeah. the, the big thing for me on this case, it's not just that it happened. Um, she is, she's been charged at this point with uh, multiple counts of uh, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, bank fraud. Uh, each one of those would have a maximum sentence of around 30 years in prison. There's other people from this Forbes list that have 
face uh, charges. I'm not going to get into them here. I'm just going to talk about Frank. Well, I'm not sure. Like, so uh, is it readily apparent what has occurred here? I, okay. It looks like from everything I've read about this case, uh, she inflated the numbers thinking that was like a normal thing to do. I don't think she expected it to be such a big acquisition by JP Morgan Chase. Right, and it shouldn't have been because they should have the tools in place to realize that um, it was falsified. Right, right. So it's a combination of things. So first of all, she's falsifying her user number by a lot. Like basically she made up 10 times the number she had um, and and then some. Um, But ultimately, you're right, due diligence, even at the most basic level, should have been able to – uh, to spot this much, much sooner uh, that it's happening over such a, a sort of a drawn out period because 2021, they make the ac- acquisition 2022. Um, they start to do some things uh, to utilize what they basically uh, were, were buying, which is sort of the sweet spot list of 5 million future customers for JP Morgan chase. That's what they were buying. They, I, I don't think they gave a, a happy about what Frank could or could not do. They were looking at the idea that they would have 5 million people's financial information sort of in front of them who they could market all of their products to, particularly their – that's a sweet spot for credit cards. Yeah. And that's where J.P. Morgan Chase makes the bulk of its money. So do you think maybe the um – sort of unconsciously overlooked how great that would be. Yeah. I mean, the, the truth is a bank as big as JP Morgan Chase making an acquisition that big, they should have their, their eyes may have been bigger than their wallet. Well, I'm, I would just be curious to know what the acquisitioners uh, involved in this, what they thought Frank was doing to attract so many customers. Um, because well, its basic uh, principle of its model, right? Um, yeah. It's really sort of encompassed in like the FASFA. <laughs> and I'm not sure why anybody would need to go through Frank to get to the FASFA. Yeah, I, I can't tell on the surface what it's doing. The, I, the, the general idea is that Frank is a platform that would help college students manage their incoming financial aid and then their debt. Basically, it's helping them control their money. Now, Frank is currently shut down. And well, I don't right, think. Because it was bogus. Yeah, yeah. I don't think Frank's. Well, okay. I, I just want to say that, like, Frank itself is not bogus. Frank was interesting. It was bought by J.P. Morgan Chase and was shut down. The bogus part is in how many people were using it. There were 300,000 people using it, according to J.P. Morgan Chase's lawsuit. Right, but that's not worth $175 million. Not at all. Not even close to that. Right, and so to me, the reason it only had 300,000 users and the reason why they had to uh, artificially inflate the numbers to 4 million as opposed to actually 
I don't know, getting 4 million customers is because the concept is bogus. It's not, I mean, it's not bogus as in like, you know, it doesn't do anything. It could be very useful, but there are lots of tools out there that are available that can be used to accomplish the exact same thing without going through this intermediary, right? Yeah. If this were something that were to pop up on Shark Tank, 300,000 would be impressive and somebody would get in there and they would hire some experts to like do due diligence on those 300,000 and to expand it and try and get it to a real number rather and they would buy into a percentage of the company they wouldn't buy in for 175 million dollars they would buy in for a couple mil they would they would have a valuation done on the company as it stood and then they would turn around and they would try and sort of balloon it out which jp morgan chase realized there were problems so first of all it's it's on charlie because she sued jp morgan chase when an internal investigation launched in 2022 uh, led to her being fired in November of 2022. And she sued them and said, they're trying to get out of paying these bonuses, which were very large amounts of money related to her salary and her position. So that was a huge overstep. Yeah, that was a huge overstep. And the balls on someone to think that they won't get caught fabricating that amount of information is pretty impressive but it's also pretty stupid in this day and age but it's not you know she's not the first one to do something like this uh, or the first one to be caught doing something like this but this would have pursued it criminally if she hadn't have uh, pushed for her bonuses i think i think she was trying to force a settlement there that the legal action created a problem because that's when people started looking at it and scrutinizing it and it's just weird to me that the internal investigation, in my opinion, it looked like it was going to be swept under the rug. Like, right. Well, because it's embarrassing. Um, right, right. We're going to eat this. We're going to try and claw back some of this money, and that's it. She knows. Uh, so she, so they had to essentially hire, um, like you said, a data scientist to inject their platform with these fake consumers, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, that had to be done a certain way where it wasn't immediately noticed that it was, you know, that they were fake consumers. And so she has to be cognizant that what she did was wrong. Right. Oh, absolutely. Because I can't imagine like a young entrepreneur, um, saying, you know, okay, I've got this company and I'm going to hire this data scientist to make it look really great. I mean, she didn't have any sort of even in her wildest dreams, she wouldn't expect these fake consumers to, you know, become real people, right? And so I wonder, uh, like you said, the balls on someone to do something like that once they've been caught, essentially. Um, it makes me wonder, like, well, what was she thinking? Well, we're going to see a lot of this in the coming years uh, related to PPP fraud with the paycheck protection provisions. Um the, the money that went out that way, we're going to see different types of fraud. This is slightly different. One of the things that she was able to do here, which is interesting, she was able to obscure a lot of the deal up until the moment it became J.P. Morgan's property because of privacy laws related to students. So J.P. Morgan realized they could not get the information for the customer list out of her until the deal was pretty much finalized. And that having been done, 
it uh, it makes everybody look bad. It and honestly, it just makes her look ambitious. We have a, a there's a lot of headline articles that you can read about people who get too ambitious and really don't know what they're doing. I don't think that I think that her saying that she had five hundred thousand customers would be ambitious. I think that four million based on three hundred thousand actual customers, I I have to say that that goes beyond ambition. Well, I, I agree with you. See, I think both sides are wrong here. And I think that's where you're at with this. I think JP Morgan is a little too big for its britches anyways, and it probably needed something like this happening to it. Uh, so there's that, but I definitely think she committed uh, several levels of fraud and not necessarily what she's charged with federally. Um, I believe that the fraud, uh, in a lot of ways, this falls into what I would call sort of a, a, a big civil problem. Well, it would be interesting to know, having fronted $175 million to purchase Frank, the company, um, and provided her with a managing director position at uh, the bank itself, you know, what kind of return were they looking for on that? Well, okay. So what they wanted to do is they wanted to utilize this to both retain and develop customer bases. Right. So, I'm just looking for a dollar amount. In the billions. Right. And so, you know, they felt like she had this thing that they wanted. You know, 300000 wouldn't have been worth their time, really, because um, it's not going to generate what they're looking for, right? Yeah. They've bought some – J.P. Morgan continues to buy some really stupid stuff. And I can say that from – the perspective of watching a company with the level of money that has the level of money JP Morgan has access to. In, in my opinion, when you see this startup coming along and it's raising money relatively legitimately, there's a point in time, like if you look from 2017 to about 2019, Frank is building and building and building and they are, Raising, I think around $25 million is what they end up raising. Right, but they never, like, they were never generating any money. No, not not to anything close to that, no. Um, They they were never going to generate. Exactly. They were, J.P. Morgan didn't go in thinking they were going to take over the revenue stream from them because there wasn't a revenue stream. They were going to use the data for a completely different purpose. Well, yeah, and Frank, like when you look at it, it originally looked like this kind of wholesome thing. So the users were all low to moderate income family. In fact, they boasted that they had a user base that was predominantly women and predominantly first-time college attendees. So these are people, they don't have a history in their family of getting advanced degrees. And what they were doing here is they were providing all of the tools and all of the content and all of the sort of dashboard interfaces to the users for free. But they were then going back and charging the schools a fee to help their students. And that was what was attractive about it to J.P. Morgan is, is Frank looked like it was doing business with 300 universities with the potential to do business with 3,000 universities. 
where it, it had some guaranteed income down the road to cover Frank coming from the universities to assist these students. And then the students, because of their pleasant user interaction and their ability to monitor their aid and to distribute their aid, they would be able to essentially become chase customers, which is, that was the, that was the deal. That's what they were, where they would have their first checking accounts. They would have savings accounts. They would have other like, it was a one-stop shop. Yeah. Right. And then the big bet was, according to their data, this is J.P. Morgan uh, uh, Chase, their data. They were anticipating that about 25 to 30% of those people from just Frank would then have their children getting their first checking and savings accounts and using Frank for their college experience. So they really saw this as sort of a um, – like a, a lifetime environmental thing that they were doing where they were going to suck people in and have them be customers of the bank long-term. Right. And in theory, there's not, there's nothing really wrong with that. Um, everybody needs access to money. Everybody needs ways to use the money they make to borrow money when they need it. You know, so it's not necessarily wrong. Um, it's, it's the fact that they put out so much money for so little and then I'm not entirely sure but I think it's her sort of uh doubling down when she was denied something she felt like she should have once she because of course they fired her once they realized um she had like blatantly presented you know just a big old ball of fraud to them and you know they had purchased it from her yeah she filled a niche that they thought that they were so in about 2013 Chase Bank stopped doing private student loan because well not just private but also like federally backed student loan lending because they realized that it there was no bottom to it and it wasn't a good fit for their business. They had been looking for an inroad back into that that was safer and Frank looked like it would be that thing that they, you know, kind of wanted. So I I don't know what the value of JP Morgan Chase is overall. I know it's a huge number. Um, I would say that if you had to like look at it, it's probably something like 300 billion or 350 billion. And in, in my opinion, uh, they should eat this on the front end. She should get a nice plea deal and, uh, probably some white collar work somewhere to help identify other scams that look real similar to her. Yeah, I, I don't know. I I have my uh, thoughts about financial crime. I do feel like that blatant disregard. Of course, I've never spoken to this person. I mean, she could have a a perfectly plausible explanation, but I doubt it under the circumstances where they hired this data scientist. You know, if they said, well, you know, it's normal to inflate things. Well, I mean, I could buy that a little bit, but not this much. I can't imagine anyone in good faith feeling like, you know, exaggerating, exaggerating the numbers uh, to, you know, more than 10 times what 
the actual numbers are would be like an acceptable thing, right? It's just yeah. not happening. I, I bring her up because I have a different thing to cover today. I think you uh, read up on this. Do you ever read New York Magazine, like their strange articles that they put out? Yeah. So they do this thing called One Great Story. Uh, a lot of times, like the 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 stuff that pops up in One Great Story can be uh, political or it can be sort of zeitgeisty. They, they had one pop up on uh, April the 11th in the Intelligencer uh, section by a guy named David Herbert. It's just, it's too fascinating to pass up and it kind of ties into some thoughts I've had along the years. And it also ties into a pop crime versus true crime, but it, it ties into the Vidoc society, which is, uh, the Vidoc Society is an interesting group, which I'm sure you and I have talked about them, so I assume you know a little bit about them. I do. Mm-hmm. It's a members-only sort of elite crime-solving dinner club, I guess would be the right way to say it. It's out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's actually named for Eugene Francois Vidoc, who is uh, he's considered to be the first like known private detective. He's a 19th century uh, French crime analyst who helped police to solve cold case homicides by using the psychology of the criminal. In some ways, he's sort of the like the godfather of, of profiling and criminology. Um, in theory, he created the first private detective agency. And he's known for a lot of odd... Uh, inventions that he created, uh, including a permanent marker, uh, indelible ink, bond paper that could be identified. Uh, but he's also known for undercover work and uh, ballistics and keeping a criminal database. Um, he was among the first ever to use plaster cast impressions of shoe prints. Um, his work is highly, highly recognized today by its constant reuse. He is also a criminal, just for the record. He was a fraudster. So the Vidoc Society is named for him. It was formed in 1990 by a gentleman named William Fleischer, uh, a man named Richard Walter, and a guy named Frank Bender. In 1991, they solved their first case when uh, they got involved in the murder of Huey Cox and Little Rock, Arkansas, and they helped to clear an innocent man in that case. They have also, uh, you know, been known for identifying Joseph Augustus Sorelli, who was known as Boy in the Box, and someone we have talked about at length over the years. And they were involved in solving the murder of Terry Brooks. They sort of have a reputation that if you have like an unsolvable case, you could bring it to them and potentially get leads that take you down this sort of massive uh, rabbit hole. But today, I want to talk a little bit about one of the founders of the Vidoc Society, and I'm going to pull from this article pretty heavily. The title of the article sort of gives it all away. The Case of the Fake Sherlock. Uh, Richard Walter was hailed as a genius criminal profiler. How did he get away with his fraud for so 
long. Now, before we got into this, had you ever heard of Richard Walter? Just in passing. Yeah, I'd only like I had only heard his name once or twice, and there were, he is involved in a couple of uh, high-profile cases over the, over the years. Um, I like how the article starts out because it's a case that's like kind of near and dear to my heart. It's a June 28, 2000 case of uh, a girl named Leah Freeman. So I'm going to read a little bit of the article. We'll talk about it, and, and then we'll kind of go through what's happening here. Coquille, which is on the Oregon coast, is a two-stoplight town where mist rolls off the Pacific and many of the 4,000 residents work in lumber and fishing. On the night of June 28, 2000, a 15-year-old named Leah Freeman left a friend's house and set off on her own. She was last seen walking past McKay's Market, uh, the credit union, and then the high school, but she never made it all the way home. At a gas station, a county worker found one of Leah's sneakers. The local paper published Leah's school photo, a big smile with a mouthful of braces. Police and a donor put together a $10,000 reward for information, leading to her safe return. Canine units swept the school grounds, and police set up roadblocks and interviewed motorists. On its sign, the Myrtle Lane Motel posted a description of Leah. A month later, the message was replaced with Job chapter 1, verse 22. The Lord gives, the Lord takes. A search party had found Leah's body at the bottom of an embankment, severely decomposed. We prayed for her to return, the motel manager told a reporter, and now we can pray for whoever did this to be caught. But the killer was not caught. The police had initially treated Leah as a runaway before mounting a search. And when the FBI and state police finally arrived, investigators were too far behind. They never recovered. As months turned into years, Coquille police dwelled on one suspect whose story never quite made sense to them, Nick McGuffin. He was Leah's 18-year-old boyfriend. Friends had seen them argue. Police said he switched cars the night she vanished, and he flunked a polygraph. The hunch was there, but the physical evidence wasn't. In January of 2010, a new team of detectives and a prosecutor flew to Philadelphia to pursue a last-ditch option, to present the case to a league of elite investigators called the Vidoc Society who met once a month to listen to the facts of cold cases and sometimes to venture instant insights. The group's co-founder, Richard Walter, was billed as one of America's preeminent criminal profilers, an investigative wizard who could examine a few clues and conjure a portrait of a murderer. Walter was tall and gaunt with a hard-to-place, vaguely English accent. He favored cools and Chardonnay, and he was never photographed in anything but a dark suit, a tiny smile often curling at the corner of his mouth. His public profile was about to explode. A publisher was finalizing a book about the Vidoc Society called The Murder Room, which detailed Walter's casework on four continents and claimed that at Scotland Yard, he was known as the living Sherlock Holmes. In Philadelphia, members of the Coquill team presented Leah Freeman's murder to the Vidoc Society. Later, at a private dinner, Walter dangled before them a tantalizing profile that suggested the killer was indeed MacGuffin, the boyfriend they had had suspected all along. Soon, Walter traveled to Coquille and examined crime scenes with the police chief, trailed by a camera crew from ABC's 2020. Building on the momentum of Walter's visit, the authorities arrested MacGuffin and charged him with killing Leah. As he awaited trial, 
you watch the 2020 episode about his case from the Coos County Jail. There on TV was Walter, a man he never met, all but accusing him of murder. It's sweet revenge, Walter said with a grin, and I take great personal satisfaction in hearing handcuffs click. McGuffin was convicted and sentenced to a decade in prison. In the years to come, he would often sit in his cell and wonder, who was that thin man smoking on the screen? Richard Walter is many things and little that he claims. Since at least 1982, he has touted phony credentials, a bogus work history. He claims to have helped solve murder cases that in reality he had limited or no involvement with, and even one murder that may not have occurred at all. These lies did not prevent him from serving as an expert witness in trials across the country. His specialty was providing criminal profiles that neatly implicated defendants, imputing motives to them that could support harsher charges and win over juries. Convictions in at least three murder cases in which he testified have since been overturned, and in 2003, a federal judge declared him a charlatan. Walter refused several requests for an interview. You have earned one's distrust that merits severing any contact with you in the future, he wrote me, veering into strange pronoun usage. Under no circumstances would himself cooperate in your suspicious activities. Many of his misdeeds were a matter of record before he ever stepped foot in Coquill. And yet Walter continued to operate with impunity, charging as much as $1,000 a day as a consultant. America's fragmented criminal justice system allowed him to commit perjury in one state and move on to the next. Journalists laundered his reputation in TV shows and books. Parents desperate for closure in the unsolved murder of a son or a daughter clamored for his aid. And then there was Walter's own pathology. He so fully inhabited the role of celebrated criminal profiler, he forgot he was pulling a con at all. So there's more to this article, but I want to pause here for a second and talk about this guy. This guy's been doing this for a while by the time the Leah Freeman case happens. Which is shocking. Right. What's so interesting about this to me is this is a con artist in the middle of a pretty elite group of law enforcement who should be able to tell they've got a con artist sitting with them. Right, but he's he's not just in the middle of them. He's a founding member of this society. Yes, and that part has changed everything for me about how I think about... Okay, so first of all, you know I'm not big on criminal profiling. Um, right, it's, I mean, at this point, it's, it's, it's not completely useless, but there are like way better ways. Yeah, your thing is you want to see it on tape or see the DNA. And I kind of agree with that. Well, and like profiling is more of a situation where you're you have nowhere to go, and so you have to have information to start, right? Yeah. Profiling is like okay, you're looking for this type of person, right? Well, I mean, it. I don't like I've said in other times we've talked about this. I don't know if it's like the benefit of all the profiling that was done when it became a thing or if it's just a natural human instinct. Most of the time people can, you know, throw out a profile of who probably committed a crime, right? Right. It's it's not that 
specialized of a thing to do. But if, or, it or gained, that complex. Right. And it gained traction, you know, when it, you know, profiling was this huge deal, you know, that the FBI took on and, you know, they found success in some cases that perhaps without the profiling, they wouldn't have had that success, right? Yeah. So first of all, I find this case of Leah Freeman being the one who sort of undoes this fascinating because Nick McGuffin's last name is McGuffin. Do you know what a McGuffin is? I don't, I don't, I don't know. So in fiction, a MacGuffin is an object device or event that is necessary to the plot and the motivation of the characters, but it's actually completely unrelated or unimportant itself. Right. Okay. So So, that's very ironic or not ironic. (laughs) Right. So um, it's, it comes about with like, if you've seen a George Lucas movie, there's always a MacGuffin Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's actually, I mean, the Ark itself is a MacGuffin. R2-D2 in the Star Wars films, he's a MacGuffin. You know, there's a lot of them that are, like, very large. But Angus McPhail, when he was writing for Alfred Hitchcock, like, he created this thing where sometimes you're, like, literally looking at, uh, I think it was the Maltese Falcon is the original one. Like, you're looking at this little statuette that's, like, the title of the movie, and it's, like, all there, but it really means nothing. And I think that Nick McGuffin being involved in Leah Freeman's case is very similar to that idea. I think he has nothing to do with it. I think they took like a few weird things that happen when you, you know, are trying to get a teenager to explain what they were doing. And they end up in this situation where whether he did it or not, you have this long ongoing cold case uh, because of, you know, Richard Walter sticking his, his finger in it. Um, So, well, according to him, like he solved the case. Yeah. And so that here, we'll get back to him for a second. So in Richard Walter's telling, and this comes from the, uh, the article in New York magazine, um, he was fated for a grim life studying criminals, a schoolmate who grew up with him in the rolling orchard country of 1950s, Washington state. Remember an outgoing popular kid who liked the piano and led the prayer band at a Seventh-day Adventist boarding school. In September of 1963, at the age of 20, he married a former classmate and he briefly took a job at a funeral home. Um, But his brother recalls that he didn't want to work with any old stinky bodies. So after 10 months, at the age of 20, his wife files for divorce citing mental cruelty What he was doing over the next several years is unclear, and when he was asked in a deposition where he lived and worked during that period, Walter's answer was, I don't remember. He resurfaces about 12 years later in the public record in 1975. So he's going to be, you know, around 32, 33 years old uh, when he graduated from Michigan State University with a bachelor's and then a master's degree in psychology. He got an entry-level position as a lab assistant in the Los Angeles County Medical Examiner's Office. So you got this guy, he's 33, turning 34. He's basically making $3 an hour in 1975 into 1976 while he's uh, washing test tubes. That's how the author here describes it. He considered a doctoral program, but instead he took a job in 1978 as a staff psychologist at a place where he'd be able to see patients 
without having to have any further qualifications. And that is the Marquette Branch Prison on Michigan's UP on the Upper Peninsula. But Walter's rapport with prisoners was poor. He often conducted interviews through a closed steel door, and he could be petty. An inmate sued Walter after he refused to pass along a dictionary sent by his mother. Two psychiatric experts and a federal judge questioned his ability to diagnose mental disorders and render basic mental health services. Eventually, Walter's duties largely involved conducting intake interviews with inmates. Uh, John Han, who worked in the state prison system as a psychologist, called it the meatball stuff. You talk to them for a little while, and all you're doing is making sure they're not totally crazy. Away from the prison, though, Walter presented his job as giving him unique insights into the criminal mind. He became a regular at conferences hosted by the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, which was rising in stature on the strength of specialties like microscopic hairs, bullet-led analysis, and criminal profiling. Profiling was especially hot. The FBI's behavioral science unit was going from fringe to mainstream. The profilers there had consulted on fewer than 200 cases in all of the 1970s, but by the middle of the next decade, they were providing hundreds of assists each year. The unit began attracting big personalities. Park Dietz, a forensic psychiatrist who has worked with the BSU, said where there are stars, there are wannabe stars. Those with big egos who often gravitate to these centers of narcissistic glory. In 1982, Walter became a full member of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, which is a powerful credential. That year, for the first time, he would try on this invented persona in a courtroom. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about another case they mentioned in this article. That's It's a weird one, but it's the first time that Richard Walter is in a court giving like a, a pretty serious opinion that's going to have an effect on a sentence. Uh, Robbie Drake was wearing military fatigues and carrying rifles and hunting knives when he left his home in the Buffalo suburbs. It was just before midnight on December 5th of 1981, and the 17-year-old headed to an area of North Tonawanda filled with abandoned vehicles. He took aim at a 1969 Chevy Nova, and he fired 19 rounds into the passenger's side window. But then from inside the car, he heard groaning. The location was also a lover's lane. And his bullets had struck Stephen Rosenthal, 18, and Amy Smith, 16. Drake then stabbed Rosenthal in the back. Two police officers on a routine patrol spotted Drake stuffing Amy Smith's body into the trunk of the Nova. The case appeared to be open and shut, but the prosecutor, Peter Broderick, saw weaknesses. Drake insisted that it had all been a mistake. His reasons were just plausible enough to imagine holdouts on a jury. The scene had been dark. Drake said he shot the car for target practice, thinking it was an empty, abandoned vehicle, and he panicked when he heard Rosenthal, and he stabbed him to make the noise stop. However unlikely that sounded, Broderick lacked a clear motive and intent would be the sole issue separating a murder conviction from a lesser charge of manslaughter. Broderick later said, all I needed was some reasonable explanation for why this thing happened. Broderick suspected that Drake's motive was sexual, so that he was there to do something to Amy Smith. He hired Lowell Levine, 
a forensic odontologist to testify that faint marks on Smith's body were signs of post-mortem biting, which was possible evidence of a sex crime. Levine suggested that to firm up that angle, the prosecutor should bring in another expert, someone he'd recently met at an American Academy of Forensic Science conference. Two weeks later, Broderick drove to the airport and picked up Richard Walter. So first of all, forensic odontology is unto itself a problematic thing. Unless they've got DNA samples. Right. Uh, but now we're we're going to throw Richard Walter into this. Uh, on the stand at Roby Drake's trial, Walter related an impressive and fictional resume. He falsely claimed that at the L.A. County Medical Examiner's Office, he had reviewed more than 5,000 murder cases. Walter also said he was an adjunct lecturer at Northern Michigan University. And while he had spoken there informally, possibly once, um, he said that he wrote criminology papers, that he had, he had never been published, and that he had served as an expert witness at hundreds of trials. At this time, he testified in two known cases. One was about a simple chain of evidence question, and then in a civil suit against the car company. Walter told the jury that Drake had committed a particular type of lust murder because he was driven by peakerism which is an obscure sadistic impulse to derive sexual pleasure from penetrating people with bullets, knives, and teeth. Drake's attorney told the court that he could not find any expert who had ever heard of peakerism, but the judge denied his request for more time to find a rebuttal psychologist. Drake ends up convicted of second-degree murder, and back in Michigan, Walter sends Broderick an invoice. So he secures two consecutive terms of 20 years to life for the fee of three hundred dollars, right? He just made it up. He just made it up. So the trial is the end of uh, Ruby Drake's freedom, and it's the beginning of Walter's new career. This right. guy his, his, runs with it. His professional opinion is for sale, and yep. he literally has no bounds. He's willing to, uh, you know, cater a a an answer. That is going to be in your court. It's crazy, isn't it? It it is it is crazy. Um, and the only thing that I could think of, like the whole time I was reading this, is uh, so this guy. If you take a look at him, there's nothing like spectacular about him. He's just sort of an average-looking guy, right? Maybe even right. a little bit academic nerdy kind of right i would agree with that i feel like um the secret to his i guess you call it success if we're weighing on you know how successfully he was able to present himself and you know uh keep this con going i think that the secret to his success was he presented himself as a Above and beyond reproach. Like he really, he really does, yeah. He says something and then he sort of dares anybody to prove him wrong. And I have no doubt that the ju- the jury relied on this testimony. And it's so weird to me because, like, if you can't find anybody to rebut testimony, you really do need to consider what you're looking at. 
right? As far as like, wait a minute, you're saying this. And like, there's absolutely, like, this was just a fiction that he just spouted out of his mouth, right? Um, it, It had nothing to do with any sort of actual reason that it would tie this kid to having more of a motive to accident, well, not accidentally, but like shooting at cars and, and killing people in them. Right. It, it, yeah. But you know that the jury relied on that. Oh yeah. And when you have a situation where you have the state putting on um, expert witnesses, which he didn't qualify as an expert witness credentials wise. Right. He just pretended like he did. Correct. Which is bizarre, right? Well, he's he's participating in fake it till you make it. Like to be clear, Pinkerism is considered to be a real sexual paraphilia, but it is. But it had no bearing on the situation that he was testifying about. It, It has nothing to do with the Drake case at all. In fact, it's not even like, it's not even, uh, a factor, not, it's not just that, I don't know how to explain it. There are a few cases where peakerism is considered to be confirmed as a paraphilia involved in murder. There, you could go read about them on the internet, but the truth is it's a paraphilia that is largely left ununderstood. Like it's, we don't understand it enough yet for someone like Richard Walter at this time to be, talking about it in court. Well, and is that, wouldn't that be concerning that? Yeah, it should have been. And it, it, it does catch up in about 20 years. So, (laughs) so what Walter does with this is he starts testifying in occasional murder trials. And the effect that that has is eventually the real things he's talking about in court replace all of the bullshit on his resume. In 1987, he took the stand in the state of Ohio versus Richard Haynes. He was holding himself out as a superstar in the field, and he tells the prosecutor in that case that he was one of just 10 or so criminal profilers who were trusted by the FBI. Then he goes on the lecture circuit, and he starts widely giving speeches. Uh, The examples given in the article were lust, arson, and rape, a factorial approach, and anger biting the hidden impulse. And audiences appeared to love this entertaining wry style that he presents things with. Um, An amused attendee after Walter's presentation at a 1989 conference, which was hosted by the Association of Police Surgeons of Great Britain, said his story, as many of Richard's are, has to be heard from his own mouth. It would lose all by repetition by another. So... Walter continues to get venues for his theatrics that are not just in the courtroom. Now, according to one version of events that's documented in this article, around this time at a forensic science convention, possibly an American Academy of Forensic Science convention, Walter meets a guy named Frank Bender, who was an eclectic Philadelphia artist who his sideline was to do forensic sculpture. Specifically, he would reconstruct busts from decomposed bodies to try and give a face to victims. 
Bender was plugged into the Philadelphia law enforcement scene, and he ends up introducing Walter to Bill Fleischer, who is a customs agent. So the three of them have dinner at a diner, and and they end up talking about this series of cold cases until the sun goes down. And while they're standing outside afterwards in the cold, they have this idea that maybe they should organize something bigger than just the three of them and get a group of elite law enforcement professionals together who would have regular meetings and they would talk murder. Um, And they had to decide what they were going to call this. And this is where they decide to go with the Vidoc Society. So the three of them, Walter, Bender, and Fleischer, established the Vidoc Society in 1990 in Philadelphia. Even today, the Vidoc Society has a stellar reputation. Well, right. And so if you think about it, Walter initially testified in the, the case that we were just talking about in, um, what, 1982? Was that right? Yeah, 82. And, and so from that point um, up until, you know, the society was formed, he was, you know, gaining uh, respect in the role that he was playing, right? Now, he, he had absolutely no qualifications for this. He had a master's degree in psychology, but that's not enough to be a psychologist, right? You still have to, right. like, get a doctorate. Or a PhD to, or an MD, yeah. To actually, you know, practice psychology. But, you know, it would give him some understanding. But he took it and ran with it. You're absolutely right. And so, now, I don't know about you. I hadn't really thought a whole lot about the Vidoc Society. I am familiar with it. And I know, you know, it's like these highly revered, you know, experts. And I'm not entirely sure that that is the actual accurate description. Yeah. It seems like, you know, I'm not, I haven't looked into it enough to, to say one way or the other, but I will say that the information here, I had never had any reason to question what they had presented to us because it just hasn't come up. I mean, there's all kinds of fake stuff out there that you've never encountered, so you don't have to think about it. But this has presented that, right? You've got a situation where one of the founders, he faked it until he made it, and he presented himself as this expert beyond reproach. And, you know, to some extent, I see where that had to happen. It's it's the outcome and how it influence these other people's lives that he cared very little about that really causes it to be a problem. Yeah. That's the key to it all. Here's a little bit about like from the article about the Vidoc society and sort of Walter's on the fringes of this stuff. He's not really, I don't know if my final opinion of the Vidoc society is going to, you know, be swayed by Walter himself, but So criminal profiling was this pop culture sensation. And that comes about because in 1991, the silence of the lambs is, it's a huge deal. Um, It's this, you know, psychological thriller horror movie. It makes $272 million that year. It sweeps the Academy Awards. Um, There was an FBI profiler who helped Jodie Foster prepare for a role named Gina Monroe. And she says it was a very exciting time, but the FBI didn't want the attention. 
So there was this vacuum created in that. So you've got 1990, the Vidoc Society is created. 91, you have the Silence of the Lambs. So by 92, the media is clamoring for secret criminal organization stuff. And the Vidic Society sort of moves into the vacuum. And that is the best description I've heard of it. It comes from the author here. And he says that they were quickly being mentioned in write-ups in uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer and in the New York Times and then doing their own write-ups. And reporters were relishing describing the three co-founders. You've got Bender, the artist, who shows up in T-shirts and jeans. Uh, you got Fleischer, who is this big, lovable teddy bear G-man. Um, he would tear up during these presentations. And you've got Walter, who's this chain-smoking genius off to the side. Um, Hollywood begins calling, and network television begins calling. CBS's 48 Hours comes to watch the Vidoc Society, considering a case, um, specifically the case of Zoya Sor, who is a 27-year-old who was found dead in the woods of Ocean County, New Jersey. Her fiancé was an ophthalmologist there named Ken Andronica. Uh, he suspected her death was not a suicide, but was a murder. And a friend of Andronica's had approached the organization for help. Fleischer presents the facts and then concludes, now our case begins. The CBS correspondent at the time was Richard Schlesinger. So he runs around and he's trying to get everybody's opinion on this case because this club has grown at this point. But he's asking people, is it murder or suicide? And most of them are saying that it's murder. Walter, at this point, tells the camera that Ken might have been the killer and that he might be playing a high-risk game of Catch Me If You Can. So Ken Andronica, had, he, had moved, he had been more than 1,000 miles away at the time of Azer's death. He's watching this 48 Hours episode from his apartment, and he's like, what is going on? His patients began to cancel their appointments, and his medical practice gets upended and it stays that way for many years. He's never charged with a crime. Retired Ocean County detective James Churchill, he dismisses the whole theory and the Videx Society's involvement. And he says they never looked at the file. They never had any of the statements. They never had any medical records. The fact that they were discussing it was preposterous. That's from James Churchill. Now, other people have not been as lucky. At the Vidoc Society's April 1992 meeting, so this is two years after it's formed, a Philadelphia homicide detective named Bob Snyder, he gets up on the podium, he opens up a file, and he presents the cold case murder of an undergraduate student named Deborah Wilson. So she's from Drexel University, and she had been killed after working at the computer lab. You've got everybody sitting here having lunch, and then... The members are viewing like the crime scene photos. She had saliva with foam on her, which they're saying is indicative of strangulation. And afterwards, Walter decides to offer up this tidbit. He says that Wilson's sneakers had been removed and that indicated that the killer had a foot fetish. So later on, police searched the home of a man named David Dixon, who was a security guard on duty the night of the murder and they find a collection of women's sneakers and foot fetish pornography. The press begins to call him Dr. Scholl, and Dixon gets charged with murder. In court, his attorney protests that the alleged motive is absurd. 
Um, specifically, he says, this man is a sneaker sniffer, not a murderer. But the prosecutor was a man named Roger King, who was a powerhouse in the prosecutor's office. Uh, he claimed to have put more men on death row than anyone else in the history of the office. So one jury deadlocks, but King wins the retrial and Dixon is sentenced to life in prison. The Vidoc Society gives an award to Snyder and the club celebrates cracking a major case. Walter turns out to be the real winner because his theory had been the theory that had led to the arrest and conviction. And he talks about this case in media interviews for literally the next 30 years. Roger King dies in 2016, but five years after that in 2021, the Philadelphia Inquirer published a major investigation into his tactics, and they found that he routinely manipulated and tampered with witnesses. He would withhold exculpatory evidence in what's known as Brady violations. He would also employ jailhouse snitches whose credibility he knew was less than stellar. One of the men who testified against Dixon was a man named John Hall. And John Hall's wife had helped him fabricate testimony by sending him newspaper clippings in jail. Um, she told the Inquirer in 2021 that nothing John Hall had said was true. Now, at least seven of Roger King's murder convictions have been overturned. And we will talk about him again down the road, I'm sure. It is anticipated that Dixon's will be the next. Uh, in 2022, his attorney filed a petition with the court arguing that King withheld or twisted information critical of Walter's foot fetish theory, including the possibility that the victim's sneakers may not have been taken from the scene at, at all. That is a big deal for me. I like so the Robbie Drake thing, Robbie Jake thing. I like that's I can kind of get a, away from the whole peakerism is bullshit as long as we call Walter out, Richard Walter out for being like a fraud. I'm okay with that one. I think that guy, he probably did deserve some time in jail, uh, more than a manslaughter conviction. He comes back up again here in a minute, but the Dixon case is a problem. Well, mostly the first case, um, mostly, it, you know, he did stab the guy after he had shot him by accident or not. Right. There was yeah. more contact involved and, you know, it's a very tragic situation. The kid, the, uh, he was 17, right, when that was happening. So very Yeah, he young. was 17. Yeah. And so then here, right, he could have just as easily been writing fiction as far as I'm concerned. Now, he was convicted on it, and this was the backbone of a lot of the credibility that, you know, he was able to get, uh, Walter was able to get, as he continued on, right? Because he did present this, like, as he had this theory that led to the conviction of the man who killed this woman, right? Yeah. And so that builds his, that's the beginning of building his credibility. Yeah, it is. It's weird because you can't pull that base out from under him. The article continues that the Richard Walter story is not the case of an imposter who goes undetected, one misstep away from being discovered and exposed. Lots of people saw signs along the way, but few had any incentive to do anything about it. Throughout the 1990s, he was continuing to work in the Michigan correction system as a psychologist. And word eventually got around about his profiling sideline. Most of the people that worked with him found the arrangement comical, including John Hand, his 
contemporary. He said, if he's got an international reputation, why is he working in a prison for $10,000 a year? I mean, it seems like it would just be blatantly obvious, right? Yeah, it does. Other people saw through Walter's act, including retired FBI agent Greg McCrary. He recalls that the behavioral science unit once invited Walter to Quantico to ask him questions about inmate behavior. The narcissism, I think, was obvious. He really thought he knew a lot, McCrary says. The agents learned little, and he was not invited back. Richard Walter is largely a poser, McCrary says. What I say about Richard is he's an expert at being an expert, at playing one and convincing people that he is. Walter's victims struggled to get anyone to pay attention, even when they caught him in obvious lies. In 1995, Roby Drake still had decades to go on his sentence. From his maximum security prison in upstate New York, he'd been digging into Walter's resume on an antiquated computer terminal. He married a nurse who was 24 years older than him, named Marlene, and she would help. She would request documents and contact Walter's former employers. They found the various ways in which Walter had perjured himself, but when Drake appealed... A court denied his motion without a hearing. So Marlene then sent the American Academy of Forensic Sciences a 13-page dossier of Walter's inflations and outright falsehoods. Officials at the organization acknowledged in internal memos that Walter had padded his resume, but they decided to reveal as little as possible about their internal deliberations. We do have to worry about public appearances. Don Harper Mills, who is a Don Harper Mills, a pathologist who was chairman of the Ethics Committee, wrote to his colleagues. In a February 1996 letter to Marlene, Mills delivered his verdict in a single paragraph. Most of the issues do not involve the Academy's Code of Ethics, he wrote. The committee has concluded unanimously that there was no misrepresentation and therefore no code violation. One reason Walter kept skating by is that defendants like Drake existed in a form of ethical twilight. He was a guilty man robbed of due process. An expert witness had lied and had perhaps spent more of his life in prison than was warranted because of it, but he had killed two teenagers. What was Walter's perjury next to that? Walter was also galvanized by support from an unimpeachable group, and that is the victim's families. He spoke before the Parents of Murdered Children, a nonprofit that offers grief counseling and helps families lobby parole panels against early releases, and later he joined the board. At the group's annual conference, he granted private audiences to devastated parents. After years or decades of frustration with police and prosecutors, they appreciated Walter's shared sense of anger, like when he said that some murder suspects could be handled was seven cents worth of lead. So he's flat out advocating, like, going around the process altogether. So it shouldn't be all that shocking that he is willing to bend the rules to keep being whatever you want to call it. I could see that in some of the cases, um, but... I feel like in some of them, I don't know that that would really work, but. What do you um, mean? Well, I could see where he thinks he's just, you know, giving the extra little oomph that the state's case needs to put this guy away. Right. 
but I don't, some of it, I feel like he just has brought out of nowhere, uh, beyond just being like, well, this is the most logical thing that happened, or this is the only way I could really see it, which we get to like later on. Yeah. But to me, it, it, the, like the way that he sort of plays on the victim's families where he's garnering their support by saying like, you know, I think that the person who did this to your family member deserves to be shot. Who cares about the justice system? Right. And they're all like, yes, this guy's on our side. Right. And you know, that's, it's manipulation basically. Now he may have genuinely believed that. Right. But you know, if, if you look at something and I can't really tell if like, I can't tell where his mind necessarily was. It's possible this type of person, like he actually like really did believe in what he was doing. Yeah. Um, but you know, he still lacked the credentials, which I feel like would be a big red flag to anybody, you know, saying, well, I didn't quite get my doctorate. I'm not really qualified to do this. And it yeah. doesn't seem to be that he, um, he, face that particular dilemma, right? No, he didn't. Uh, he, he doesn't really get caught or called out. In fact, it sort of, sort of has the opposite effect. Um, he's so eccentric that people are a little scared to question him. But Hollywood and journalists keep calling. There's a crossover novel published in 1996. I thought this was an interesting tidbit that he threw into this article. It's a crossover between Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. So Frank and Joe Hardy and Nancy Drew run into each other at a meeting of the Vidoc Society. That's hilarious because, you know, you're talking six years earlier, Walter was in on creating this. Well, yeah, uh-huh. and to me that to me that lends more towards like sort of what's revealed in this article in, you know, 2023 is that, you know, there is a you know, possibly more fiction than reality happening there. Oh, well, I would agree with that. Yeah, that that makes sense, the way that you said it. So, uh, for a long time, filmmakers are chasing him. In 1997, uh, Danny DeVito's Jersey Films bought the Vidoc creator's story rights in a deal that was worth around $1.3 million. No movie ever gets made from it, though. And for those of you who don't know how that works, there is a lot of steps in that process to get that $1.3 million. And typically a deal that high, it actually has to have a theatrical release with a certain level of revenue. You would get, um, you would get money at each stage. So you get like some, you get a little check up front for the option. And then when it was developed into a screenplay, you might get another check. And then when it actually went into production, you get another check. And then if it gets released, you get another check. And then if it gets a, a big box office bonus, it might end up being the $1.3 million, but those are, those numbers are usually kind of fictional. Right. And so basically you're saying that by the author of this article saying that it wasn't made into a film that they, they didn't get $1.3 million. Like no, they got no. somewhere it like whatever stage it got to. And there's no details here about why. I mean, you, in theory, you know, the, the, production company could have bought it with no intention of ever releasing it. I guess. I don't know what the terms were, but um, basically they got a little bit of money. Yeah. A little bit of money came across for the option to take place. 
Uh, but more than likely, they started digging into the story and realized there was there was going to be more problems than uh, than uh, well, positives. One of the things that I do think I think part of the problem here, and I and I feel like we're in this like unique position. Um, clearly, something drove uh, the author of this to do this research and kind of put all this stuff together, right? Um, and then over time, we've seen where, like, it's been brought to the attention of people who, you know, could possibly care and do something about it, and then they've declined to. And I feel like that's more of a self-preservation type thing where you, um, you know, you acknowledge the issues of one of your members, but you don't want to bring the whole thing down, right? Right. Um, and so I think um, this article puts a perspective on it that typically one person doesn't see. Like, and so it really sort of takes looking at it from all these different angles. So while each person who saw it from a specific angle, they would have said, oh, well, that's weird, right? They had no yeah. motivation to move forward and say, how can I take this guy down, right? Because, like, you know, most of the time, if I'm watching something, especially like a trial, and an expert is on the stand the last thing I'm going to think is like, I need to disprove this expert. Right. Yeah. Because I'm not an expert. And so I think that we take a lot of it at face value. And I think he relied really heavily on that. And you said that like everybody was, you know, frustrated and, and kind of afraid to confront him about some of the ways that he conducted himself in these criminal investigations. And like I said, the key to his con being successful was he presented himself as being above reproach. And then they went along with it, afraid to confront him. Yeah. He ends up birthing his own legend. There's like, there's some interesting things that go on. They get brought up here. Now the Viaduct society in general, in this article, in the different um, statements I've read, uh, depending on who you talk to, some of the anonymous members who've been there a long time, they say that like he plays this role and he's sort of obnoxious and no one challenges them. Officially the Vidoc society now looks at what happened there. And they say that like they were keeping him in check as much as they could. Um, looking at his body of work, and particularly in this article, they point out that Reeler claimed uh, he has some preoccupations. Um, of the more than 100 papers and presentations that are listed on his resume, a quarter of them pertain to sex crimes and homosexuality. There is a representative example where he talks about homosexual panic and murder. Uh, it's a case study based on interviews conducted when an inmate who had, uh, with an inmate who had murdered a man and cut off one of his testicles. Um, Walter testified in the, in a murder case once and said that homosexual, not really a man, uh, he is a discount person. Therefore, if I need to be great, if I need to satisfy my ego, if I need to satisfy my needs for power, if I need to surmount, if I need to have a demonstration of my power, well, what better way to do it? It's not really in a good context in the article, but it's also not in a good context in the court record. But in September of 2002, uh, police officers from Huckley County, Texas, flew to Philadelphia for the Vidoc Society's help in solving a cold case. 
According to a Harper's 2003 article, during a private meeting at the luncheon, Walter in lurid detail pronounced the Texas murder a case of homosexual panic, where one man suddenly kills another after they've had a tryst or a tryst. He and Frank Bender uh, invited the detectives out to dinner where Walter became increasingly intoxicated, according to the magazine. Um, he, he boasted that they were making a movie about him and he toasted them with Chardonnay and said, Frank's the pervert and I'm the guy with the big dick. Uh, so Walter continues to press this theory uh, with these guys. And Rick Wooten, who was one of the Texas officers, said, it seemed like it didn't matter what the case was. He just thought it was some kind of sexual deviancy or homosexuality, which I disagreed with. And uh, Rick Wooten said that no arrest was made in this case and Walter was no help. Right. And, you know, going along that, quote, homosexual panic, end quote, which it was this, you know, he theorized that uh, this is what had occurred. And I'm not saying it could never happen, but like to give it that kind of categorical explanation, you have to like sort of keep in mind human nature. And even like after doing something that is described as this homosexual panic, like, oh my gosh, I did something with a guy or a girl, if you're a guy or a girl, like usually the embarrassment is not going to fester into murder because that's actually still something worse, right? Yeah. And so it's not grounded in reality at all, right? And so obviously the, the police officer, the Texas officer involved, he saw immediately that this is garbage, right? And like furthering his sort of agenda there wouldn't have helped anybody in this situation. Right. And so now I don't, I guess that case really hasn't ever been solved, but he wasn't able to help. And it almost sounds like he was just, he just had an agenda there. Yeah. He definitely has some kind of agenda related to that. And that happens sometimes when people sort of get caught up in uh, the unknown, they'll throw something on it. That is their, their own predilection sometimes. Uh, in, in September of 2000, Walter retires from his job at the Michigan Department of Corrections at the age of 57, and he moves to Montrose, which is a town in Pennsylvania. It's closer to the Vidoc Society. And uh, there, they, uh, the, art, the author interviews uh, Betty Smith, who was a former curator of the local historical society, who said that everyone was falling all over him because of his reputation. Walter tells his neighbors that he came to testify at a murder trial He fell in love with the town and he decided to stay. But two attorneys that were involved in the case he was talking about said that they don't ever recall meeting him. So he began to take on more freelance work in retirement. Go ahead. Well, to me, that makes him seem a little less con artist and a little more out of touch with reality. Like, I, (laughs) I don't know if you saw it that way, but it seems like really strange to associate yourself with something that could very easily be disproven, right? Like to say I testified as an expert on this case and then like anybody who took the time to look would see you didn't. And then what do you say, right? Yeah. Well, his response to it is just do more work. So he's retired. He begins taking on freelance work. He's, you know, when, when he goes around places and shows up in trials, 
Um, he gets the attention he's looking for. He ends up on the front page news. In at least seven separate cases, Walter would speak to local reporters and deliver a catchphrase, which is a warning to the killer that their arrest was imminent. And that catchphrase was, don't buy any green bananas. It took me a really long time to figure out what he was talking about. <laughs> like your bananas won't get ripe before we get you. I, I got it finally. But I was like, what is he talking about? Some weird code, right? Basically, they're coming for you and they'll sit there and rot, right? <laughs> you well, won't have a chance to eat them. <laughs> right. Well, in it, his work in at least five of those cases does not lead to arrest. In a sixth case, the suspect that he favored was a Catholic priest who committed suicide. And for some reason, Walter gleefully claims that as, like, proof he was accurate. This is the the case of a, a double homicide where uh, Dan O'Connell and uh, James Ellison were killed. Uh, it's, I think it's out of Wisconsin. But um, the, the murderer was Ryan Erickson, who was a Roman Catholic priest, and he was trying to prevent Dan O'Connell from going public with child molestation allegations. But before he could be arrested or talk to you about it, Erickson hanged himself in the offices of his church. That's what this reference is in here. So meanwhile, while all this is going on, Roby Drake keeps appealing his conviction. And in January of 2003, he gets a win. A federal judge reads Walter in his Pekerism theory and he says that the witness was a charlatan and that his testimony was, medically speaking, nonsense. In a deposition that July, Walter is asked to sit down with Drake's attorney and he's evasive. So Drake's attorney presses him on the tasks that he would perform at the L.A. County Medical Examiner's Office. And he says, what were you doing there? And Walter replied, good question. And the attorney says, no, it's the only question. What did you do there? By 2009, the Second Circuit had decided that he had enough with Walter. Uh, Walter had openly perjured himself with the prosecution's knowledge. So the judges ordered a new trial for Drake. And prosecutors used a new technique for analyzing bullet trajectory to argue that Drake had been closer to the Chevy Nova than initially had been thought, suggesting that he may have known there were people in there. So in 2010, a jury convicts Drake again. And even though he had exposed Walter as a fraud, the judge extended his original 40-year sentence to 50. Yeah, and so that's our system. That's our system, yep. And so having seen that happen all those years later, right? Because um, he, the, it was in like, that was his first case, like in 1982 or something like that, right? So yeah. You're talking about a really long time later. You have to wonder, okay, so, the, so yeah, the the witness was a charlatan, and you know it was a ter- you know all the bad things they said about him, but ultimately, it was almost like the means justified the ends. They just had to go with different means, um, and then he ended up with even more time to serve. Right, and you would think, you know, that this is the time where with this second circuit ruling in 2009, like, like Walter's time would be over. Right. Well, no, because I don't, I feel (laughs) like because he was reconvicted without, like, if you're just headline skimming that 
it could have all kinds of um, like inferences that if you don't look deeper, you don't actually realize that what occurred there. Right. And so him being reconvicted kind of nullifies uh, like Walter being kind of, you know, put in his place to begin with, unless you really look into it. Now, I don't know what like the normal perception is, but I do think it's possible that um, now if I were Walter, that would have been the end for me because I would have been like, wow, I'm really not good at this. Right. Um, I don't really think that was in his vocabulary though. No, it it wasn't. So the, the author of this article theorizes that what Walter was benefiting from here is sort of pre-digital age, a time when you had to physically go somewhere and like pull a copy out of a court record and make a copy. And public defenders couldn't track them. So these people that were defending who I'm going to call Richard Walter's victims, um, when they were being defended, it was, it was difficult to track them. The second circuit's ruling was harder for him to get away from, but he gets a reset, uh, sort of two resets. Um, one is in the form of a book by the author, by the author, Michael Capuzzo. So Michael Capuzzo, he wrote a bestseller about shark attacks. Have you ever heard of him? Uh, just in passing. Okay. So he, he wrote a couple of nonfiction books that were pretty cool. Uh, the first one that I, I have read was Close to Shore, and it's uh, a 2002 book about uh, Jersey Shore shark attacks of, I think, 1916, if I remember correctly. But anyways, so he is given a huge advance to write a book about the, the Vidoc Society. I think it's around $800,000 where it's this, you know, sort of thing that, that gets written about. Now, at the same time or slightly later, another author had sold a book proposal for a book about Frank Bender and the forensic sculptures. And he was worried about Michael Capuzzo sort of uh, beating him to the punch. But he publishes his book in 2008. And his book is called, uh, Ted Botha's book is called The Girl with a Crooked Nose. As he interviewed Walter, he had a sense that something was wrong. So he limits Walter's involvement in the cases that he talks about. And he really doesn't bring him up a whole lot. Now, Michael Capuzzo's proposal, uh, like the, the log line for it is, it's a true tale about a mysterious group of skilled detectives who use their skills to solve only the most despicable crimes led by a figure who seems to be a contemporary Sherlock Holmes. Now, Ted Botha, for his uh, commentary, he basically said he was amazed that like nobody came across while he was writing his book, The Girl with a Crooked Nose, had talked to Capuzzo. And he basically thought, you know, this guy's gotten this huge amount of money and there doesn't seem to be anything happening. It's almost a million dollars that he's got. But Capuzzo's volume is published in 2010 and it's called The Murder Room. It was an instant hit and, instant hit, and, it, and it sold 100,000 copies. Now, the way that he presents Walter is completely wrong. It's what you would 
basically expect if Walter himself had written the book. Uh, he describes him as the angel of vengeance and the ferryman polling parents of murdered children through blood ties of woe. Here's one of the biggest problems. The book picks up and repeats and then expands on dozens of the falsehood in Walter's resume. In the Michigan prison system, Capuzzo writes that Walter could shut off hot water and put inmates on a diet of prison loaf, which was three meals a day blended and baked into a tasteless brick. Uh, you will learn to control yourselves or I will control you, Walter had allegedly told prison inmates. But a prison spokesman disputes that a psychologist could leverage showers and meals in that way. Uh, in fact, uh, the anonymous comment was maybe in Shawshank Redemption or something, but not in real life. So Walter also claims in the book that Michigan State had hired him as an adjunct professor and that he had collaborated with the university police to investigate gay twin brothers who were fondling football fans without their consent outside the stadium. Uh, Michigan State spokesman denied that Walter had ever been employed by the school and didn't even comment on the rest of it. Uh, the book also repeats Walter's claim that he had solved the notorious 1986 murder of Anita Cobby, who is a former beauty queen who was gang raped and nearly beheaded in Australia. Detective Ian Kennedy, who led that investigation, told the author of this article he'd never heard of Walter. Other supposed feats that were even weirder were Capuzzo detailed the murder of Paul Bernard Elaine, whose boss, Antoine Lehaver, brings the case into the Vidoc Society. In a, in, and in a twist, Walter accused the boss, Lehaver, of having killed Elaine as it being the result of a homosexual affair gone awry. But Elaine and Lehaver do not seem to appear in any legal or public record databases, according to this author. Now, I didn't look on that one. I got to this part. Capuzzo may have changed these names, or Walter may have just made this up for Capuzzo. So Bender and Fleischer grumbled in the Philadelphia Inquirer stories that Capuzzo had taken too much creative license. Bender said, there are parts of the book that I know are not true. Now, he died in July of 2011. Fleischer's still alive, but he does not give interviews about Walter. And he did not give an interview about Walter to this author of, of this story. But Walter joined Capuzzo on a nationwide book tour. Dave Davies from NPR said it's fun to play detective, but they aren't playing, as he described the Vidoc Society on Fresh Air. Capuzzo didn't respond to talk about anything to do with this article. I have heard... Um, Capuzzo talking recently on some podcasts, but uh, he doesn't have a website anymore. And I didn't realize that the most recent thing I heard him talk about was vaccine theories. Now we kind of get back to Leah Freeman's case to wrap all of this up. The murder room, this book, it sort of reframes Richard Walter and reinvigorates this legend he has created of himself. Do you think that's fair to say? I suppose. I mean, I'm just trying to figure out, like, that's how, that's basically how he gets involved in Leah Freeman's murder. I mean, apparently it appears that something that should have, like, undermined and ridiculed the nature of what he was doing somehow bolstered it. I mean, that's what, I haven't read the book, but to me, that, yeah, that's what it looks like has happened. Well, I have read it, and I'm very disappointed now that I read it. Well, was it 
when you read it, do you think to yourself, wow, this guy deserves credibility? Or do you think this guy is a sham? Or like, what do you think? I thought it was being presented legitimately. But does it give him credibility? Yeah. It gives him credibility he doesn't need. Well, so to so yeah, to answer your question, then yeah, if the book gives him credibility, that's how he's you know a bouncing ball back to being a credible witness or a credible investigator that people who are stuck on these old cold cases would heed you know whatever they had to say about it. I'm going back to the article for a second, just to like use his words to kind of wrap some of this up. By the time the murder room reinvigorated the myth of Richard Walter. A decade had passed since Leah Freeman's murder. In Coquille, the candlelight vigils had grown smaller. Pink Justice for Leah hoodies spent longer intervals in the closet. Leah's father died. Her mother, Corey Courtright, regularly posted about the case on the message board web sluice and interacted with amateur gumshoes, desperate for a break in the case. Nick McGuffin was now 28 and had tried to move on. He'd had a daughter, he graduated from culinary school. And he was working at a casino in Coos Bay as the head banquet chef. Coos County had a new district attorney named Paul Frazier, and he helped Coquille hire its next police chief, Mark Daniels, who committed to reopening the case. Daniels took down the old evidence boxes and reassembled a cold case team, and soon they flew to Philadelphia and they met with Walter. Separately, an ABC producer had an idea. Wouldn't it make for gripping television to follow the Vidoc Society in the field? A team from 2020 shadowed Walter in Coquille as he assisted the investigation of Leah Freeman's murder. The network built an episode around him and the murder room. The killer, Walter told the camera, was that muscle-flexing, Teutonic kind of braggart who thinks he's John Wayne, who wants to be a bigger man than he is. He encouraged the police to focus on MacGuffin. There was no new physical evidence, but Walter rearranged puzzle pieces that didn't quite fit and he crafted his own theory. McGuffin was a jealous boyfriend who hit Leah in the face and dumped her body in the woods. Cops played tough for 2020 producers as they tailed McGuffin around town, hoping to provoke him. In my opinion, he needs to be poked a little bit, said one officer. Correspondent Jim Avila, who had reported from Beirut and the Gaza Strip, chased McGuffin's car, asking him why he wouldn't talk. On August 24, 2010, police arrested McGuffin near his home. Why do they think you did it? An ABC producer asked as he was handcuffed in his chef's jacket. Because they have nothing else to go on, and I'm the boyfriend, McGuffin said. But what contribution Walter made to the case is now the subject of intense legal scrutiny. Paul Frazier, the district attorney, had insisted in a series of memos that he was suspicious of Walter, learned about the Roby Drake case, and resolved not to rely on him. Yet Walter's fingerprints were all over Frazier's eventual case at trial. In its closing argument, Frazier parroted Walter's entire theory. And Mark Stanick, who produced the 2020 segment, worried that the coverage tainted the jury pool. When you show up in a town of a couple thousand people with cameras, that dynamic can overwhelm the evidence. And in July of 2011, a jury found McGuffin not guilty of murder, but by a vote of 10 and 2, guilty of first-degree manslaughter. He was sent to Snake River Correctional Institute in Eastern Oregon, a notorious facility for violent inmates, and he cooked in a prison kitchen and worked on a firefighting crew, cutting fire breaks in 16-hour shifts for $6 a day. 
In 2014, Janice Purisel, an Oregon attorney who was starting a branch of the Innocence Project, learned about McGuffin and agreed to represent him. She looked at the time window in which she was said to have murdered Leah and disposed of her body, and she says, it just didn't make sense. Walter's role, she surmised, had been to invent for police and prosecutors a compelling narrative to make up for a lack of evidence. They don't have a story for Nick until Walter comes in with her story, she said. Puricol hired a DNA expert to re-examine the state crime lab's report. The expert discovered that analysts had found male DNA on Leah's sneaker that did not belong to McGuffin. The information has never been shared with the defense. I was over the moon, she said, and then I was pissed. She found more exculpatory evidence, an eyewitness withdrawing cash from a bank who bolstered McGuffin's alibi, but whose account the state had failed to disclose, along with a timestamped ATM receipt. In November 2019, a circuit court judge vacated its conviction and ordered a new trial. Frazier moved to dismiss the charges instead. A few hours later, McGuffin walked into the prison kitchen and told his supervisor he wouldn't be able to make his next shift. ABC aired a follow-up 2020 episode celebrating McGuffin's release and examining all the missteps in the case, except for its own. When I called Jim Avila, who is now retired, he defended the original report's accuracy, but he said he deplored the true crime genre as one of the lowest forms of journalism. My friend, 35 years in network television has destroyed my idealism. We should all be working for ProPublica, but we're not. Does that make us bad people? I couldn't get a job at Frontline. I tried. I couldn't get a job at 60 Minutes. Avila said the background sheet his producers prepped had no red flags about Walter. Perhaps no one thought to look him up on Wikipedia as they prepared to air the episode that fall. If they had, they would have seen several paragraphs under the heading, The Drake Case. McGuffin is now suing Walter, the Vidoc Society, and Oregon law enforcement, alleging that the state fabricated evidence, coerced witnesses, and withheld exculpatory information. This past June, Walter connected to a Zoom deposition from a Comfort Inn in Scranton, looking tired. He was recovering from cancer and surgery. One of McGuffin's attorneys, Andrew Lowersdorf, grilled the profiler about his claim that he worked on cases with Scotland Yard. Walter could not recall the name of any inspectors he'd ever worked with there, and it appeared not to know that Scotland Yard and the Metro Police are, in fact, the same organization. When asked where Scotland Yard was located, the man who claimed to have visited the agency's office up to 30 times said that he didn't know, but then he offered up, downtown London? For much of the deposition, Walter spat venom at his oldest friends and allies. He had resigned from the Vidoc Society in 2015, saying he no longer trusted certain members. He quit the board of parents of murdered children because, he said, someone there was embezzling money. Bev Warnock, the current executive director, says, I can tell you that is a false allegation. Michael Capuzzo was, the, was not the most brilliant chronicler I've ever met. Colleagues at the AAFS were shallow, quite frankly, were shallow, quite frankly. Eight hours of testimony revealed an increasingly isolated man in Walter. A few months after the deposition, I met McGuffin in Purcell's conference room in Portland. He's still powerfully built from a decade at the weight pile, but his short hair was flecked with gray. COVID brought another lockdown soon after his release. Then his mother was diagnosed with cancer and his father died. McGuffin has gotten a job as a chef at a golf course, earning less than he did before his arrest. He's received death threats against himself and his daughter. 
My life, he says, is like a puzzle with the wrong pieces. For two hours, MacGuffin was composed, and then I asked if I could read from Walter's deposition, in which the profiler struggled to recall MacGuffin. He'd finally given up and said whatever his name is. MacGuffin's cheeks flushed pink. Wow, it's like I'm a nobody. His face contorted, and his body began to tremble, and he excused himself. MacGuffin had imagined all the ways that Walter plotted to ruin his life. He'd thought about it while hacking through the Oregon forest with 80 pounds of gear, while slicing onions in a prison kitchen, and while driving through the night after his shift at the golf course to see his teenage daughter. He'd entertained every permutation, but the most devastating part, that Walter didn't think about him at all. In addition to that, he couldn't remember the Roby Drake uh, Roby Drake's names in the Roby Drake case. He's still active. He was in North Carolina uh, in October of 2022, speaking at the North Carolina Homicide Investigators Conference. As recently as 2019, he has been available for work as a profiler. That year, uh, Joey Laughlin, the sheriff of Fayette County, Indiana, was reinstating the 1986 disappearance of Denise Flum. He hired Walter and paid him $3,000. There were two main suspects there that Laughlin had, and he played these interrogation tapes for Walter. And shortly after the second one began, Laughlin's chief deputy nudged him because Walter was asleep. So when he woke up, he said he was sure the suspect was the person from the first uh, tape, is what he told them. <sighs> So wait, there's an important element here that you need. Yeah, to go ahead. Well, because um, so the victim's parents, uh, you know, when asked to comment on the fact that essentially this sleep brought in expert, you know, paid expert uh, fell asleep, you know, while he was doing his preliminary investigation of what happened. So the parents were like, um, they were so thrilled to have this renowned expert involved in the case that they didn't mind that he was napping. And, um, he said old uh, people tend to nod off. Yeah. The, the father said old people tend to nod off. And unfortunately, um, David Flum, who, who was the father, right? He wasn't aware that Walter had recently called Laughlin with a new theory about his daughter, Denise's killer. And that theory was that um, it was the dad. It's the dad, <laughs> and you know, so the dad had given some leeway there to the sleeping expert, and uh, then Walter said that you know he'd been doing some thinking, and he decided it was the dad, mentioning that he would need a more of a fee to continue to elaborate on that. Yeah, the sheriff told him, "I think we're good." Right. But Denise, and, Denise Flum is her disappearance is still unsolved. Right, and so he did nothing basically. Yeah, and so he closes out this article in kind of a cool way. He says, in December of 2022, he drove to Walter's large, well-kept six-bedroom house there in Montrose, Pennsylvania, and there was an aging Mercury Grand Marquis sitting in the garage, and on his front porch there was an American flag draped across a deck chair. So he knocks on the door and there's no answer. He dialed the landline and there was an answer. And Walter said, I don't trust you. I don't like you. And I will never cooperate with you. You're wasting your time. 
And then he, this is the, this is my last quote from this article. I had wondered why Walter hadn't pursued the anonymity of a city, but Montrose had many appeals. Walter's beloved here. He's known for his homemade ginger snap cookies and the bartender at the, at the county seat, a dive across from the courthouse, relishes hearing about his true crime escapades. On a barstool in Montrose, he can fully inhabit the character he created without a fear of fact check. The next morning, as a blizzard descended, I made another attempt at his house, ringing the bell and banging on the door. At that very moment, a few hundred miles away in Philadelphia, Walter's attorneys were filing a new motion in the MacGuffin suit. They wanted to quash Janice Pirico's request for internal documents from the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. As a support, they cited memos written by Paul Frazier, the prosecutor in the Leah Freeman case, saying he had not relied on Walter's theories after learning about the Drake case and realizing he couldn't be trusted. It was a stunning turn. Richard Walter's best legal defense required finally acknowledging the obvious, that anyone with an internet connection should know he was a fraud. I think that that's a little bit presumptuous, but it isn't wrong. No, it's not wrong. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of Walters out there, personally, I think. I don't, I don't think they're quite as extreme as him. I think there are people that are probably more extreme than him. I, um, I think yeah. there's a few of those, yeah. And, you know, it takes like this really special set of circumstances to sort of bring it all together where you can look at it and go, wait, what? Right. Um, And, you know, for the most part, uh, these extra roles in our society, because anytime, you know, you have expert witness testimony, um, you know, a a judge will, uh, well, either the defense or the prosecution presents their potential expert witness, they qualify them, and then, you know, they move for the person to be considered an expert, and, you know, it can be objected to or stipulated to or whatever. And um, the jury then has, you know, this ex- this witness that has been deemed an expert by the court. Um, they could still choose whether or not they believe them or whether or not they find them credible, right? right. So, so these outsiders... Um, because, you know, it's not the state, it's not the defendant. In theory, anybody that's willing to pay an expert's fee could bring them to court and have them testify for them. And um, as long as the judicial system keeps moving to where, like, actual um, perpetrators and uh, defendants are being arrested for crimes they actually committed, like, the reliability or the credibility of their testimony isn't really something that comes into question, right? Right. Um, Not, especially not like, you know, where you would look at, you know, law enforcement and like when they do something wrong, that's a completely different situation than a, a expert in a field testifying to something that is on the fringe, right? Or, yeah you know, faults if, you know, if that's the case. But I think that it really takes some pretty almost upending cases coming to light before we can get to the point where we're like, well, wait a second. We've got these experts that like, they don't, I mean, they may be an expert, but the subject matter that they're an expert of is nothing. Right. Yeah. And it should, it doesn't matter in this situation. And, um, that's something that I think is going to take a really long time to sort of evolve through. I think 
that should be the scariest part of all of this. Right. And to take it with a grain of salt, maybe, because I just, I feel like if I were sitting on a jury and there was an expert testimony and, you know, the, the whole game is, uh, the prosecution puts on an expert and then the defense puts on an expert to, uh, rebut, rebut yeah. the, uh, you know, state's process. So, and, and it's not always that you want to, all you want to do is undermine the credibility to where they sort of neutralize each other. Right. Yeah. Um, cause you want to make like one, your theory just as plausible as theirs. And with that comes reasonable doubt, but you know, when that's not done a lot of times a jury will take an expert for, you know, what they've said. I haven't read through like the actual testimony. Like I don't know exactly what was said in these cases. I feel like there was a kind of stark injustice done here because you've got Leah Freeman being murdered. You've got, you know, 10 years later, her boyfriend um, being charged. Now the prosecution has said that, you know, they didn't really rely on Richard Walter much, at least as much as the civil case like infers that they did. Right. Right. He seemed, at least presented in this article, he seems to be that sort of tipping factor because 10 years had gone by. There wasn't anything else that happened, right? It wasn't like new evidence presented itself. There was nothing that really tipped it except you've got this guy coming along who's touted as an expert. You know, he's got this recently published book that gave him credibility as an expert um, at being part of this Vidoc society and everything that went along with it. And you've got him sort of saying, I know it seemed unlikely to you guys before, but let me tell you this story. And then suddenly the evidence they already have that they've had the entire time since Leah was, was found, was missing and then found and, they go, oh, well, that might work. And so it's almost like they just sort of relied on this, the narrative being spun to where they could make it fit. Now, you know, it needed more to it, in my opinion, because this expert was just spouting fiction, and which is yep. exactly what he did. But they took it. And, you know, I, I realize that they're saying they didn't rely on it. I find that to be unlikely just because... Like, if it wasn't him, there's some other factor that made them all of a sudden use the exact same information they'd always had to arrest this guy. Now, I happen to remember sort of the, the mainstream media, like, around this, where they, they had footage of him being arrested, right? Do you remember yeah. this? Oh, yeah. And it yeah. was insane because the whole time – now, granted, she has, uh, like – if we say that he didn't do it, right, and uh, he's out now, so if we say he didn't do it, like, in theory, her murder's unsolved, right? Now, was he? did he just serve his time and get out, or was his sentence overturned? It was overturned based on the DNA evidence that the Innocence Project came up with off of the shoe, which is weird, but that's what, well, that's, that's what it came from. So the other part of that is <laughs> we have this DNA evidence showing up on a shoe, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's the second one. I got. And, I know. And I, you know, I don't know if it was the shoe that was found. Yes, um, it was the shoe that was found at the gas right? station. 
Well, one is found that away from her, and that's where this evidence is. Well, I thought both of them were found away from her, at least not with her body, but like it was strange the way they were found. I'm not actually sure because I didn't go back and look at this case again, but it was a young girl who uh, disappeared in like the summer of 2000. And so she would have come up with keys at least briefly, right? Yep. Um, And so I know I've looked at this case and then um, for her boyfriend to have been arrested. And, you know, he seems to be so level-headed because when the press is like, you know, why are they arresting you? And he's like, because they have nothing else and I was her boyfriend. That's exactly right. This makes things so weird for me when it, you know, when you have these, bizarre experts like this i'm always pretty wary um and i'm always aware that like there's more of them than there are like really good legitimate experts that are gonna like there's a lot of people that come to testify in court and they're testifying about something so basic that there's not really a question of are they an expert are they not an expert when they go above and beyond like this that's a different thing but there's so few people out there that are able to for lack of a better word, solve cold cases with expert opinions. Um, and, you know, usually you don't see this. When you start seeing the same names over and over again, you should question that. Right. Like you and should be really upset that, about actually. it. Yeah. Right. And so in this case, you have a situation where, um, you know, but for this guy coming along and saying, you know, well, I'm an expert on this and I've profiled it and this is who you need to be looking at, Right. Um, they, an arrest probably wouldn't be made. Well, you know, as long as the person he's saying did it, you know, that's something. But when you're just, I mean, he spouted off in several cases, right? Yeah. Now, granted, you can see the difference in where some of the time law enforcement didn't take the bait. For example, the case that um, the boss brought to the Vidux Society, and he said it was more than likely the 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 boss, right? And they were like, well, that's probably not true. And so they didn't act on it, which is what you expect law enforcement to do is like to not act on ridiculous theories, right? Now, granted, it wasn't a ridiculous theory in Leah Freeman's case. He's not wrong. Like the boyfriend would be a suspect, right? It's just, there was no additional evidence that ever presented itself. And even if they, if they suspected him, they didn't have enough to act on it without this guy's opinion. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I feel like that would eat, let's say that he believed in himself, like, and he really thought what he was doing was accurate. It should make you think like, you know, four or five times before you actually say it out loud. He did not seem to process it that way. Right. Because you're you're essentially if you're wrong, you're putting some stock and some credence into a theory that is essentially going to ruin an innocent person's life. And he he takes it with a grain of salt as opposed to, um, you know, because he couldn't even remember their name later on. And, you know, the the author talks about how he got really emotional and that particular yeah. paragraph reminded me of those 
scenes on true crime documentaries where like the person asked them to stop filming. Yeah. And they, they keep filming and they put it in the final cut and we see it as the audience. I wish people would stop doing that because it's an invasion of privacy. Um, if somebody asks you to stop, don't put it on there. But anyway, I'm bringing it up, but it, it was a compelling presentation of like how much this guy that had was essentially, I mean, let's face it. He was responsible for his arrest. I mean, to me, there's not really a question. They can say he wasn't all they want, but unless they give me some other information as to why they acted when they did, I would say he was responsible for it. Right. And to hear this guy go, you know, whatever his name was when he couldn't even remember this, you know, his, who he was, it, it, it literally broke that guy's heart, right? That his life had been upended and just torn apart for no reason except this guy wanting to talk about it, basically. Yeah, it did. It tore him apart. And he, you know, things happen when you start to flash, like in his case, it's going to be his kid and like all the things related to that. That's going to flash right before your eyes and you can't get any of that back. And this guy has no idea who you are. Right. And I assume that there's been no update on like any sort of DNA matches on the shoes or anything. No, I actually, so, you know, uh, there's not any update related to it. And I reached out to Nick. Um, I actually spoke to him right as we started podcasting. This was kind of going down. One of my ideas was to put together a long form podcast with uh, Nick McGuffin that has kind of come and gone. But at the time he wanted to talk to me, the lawyers involved wanted to limit the conversation and they were really looking for something bigger because I did not know the level of lawsuits that they were about to file. They filed several um, in 2020 and 2021. And I was talking to him right before that, like as he was getting out. Um, But generally speaking, uh, I, th- I think I tried to grab him within days of the dismissal of the charges. And then they filed in July 2020 and it was just sort of bad timing all around. But my point, my point is um, there hasn't been an update on that. And I'm dying to know if there's work being done on it because, you know, and, and this is the last thing I'll say about this guy for today. What Walter did, what Richard Walter did is he creates this huge problem if you were to actually be going and prosecuting the real killer. To some extent, yes. In this particular case, I feel like um, the DNA would override his ridiculous theory or his not-so-ridiculous theory. I actually don't know exactly so, what his theory was. But. Well, there, there, was, there was something more complicated than the DNA. The DNA was important. So... That's also because the, the prosecutor said there was no unknown DNA. That's part of the problem. But there was an interview with another guy named Nick, a guy named Nick Mackman. And Nick Mackman was interviewed as a potential witness. So in the file, there is an interview with him saying, at 9 p.m., I saw Leah Freeman. Now, that by itself is not all that interesting. But what was interesting was that he had made an ATM withdrawal and it contradicted an earlier witness. So they had this ATM receipt putting Nick Backman in a particular place 
at a particular time where he had looked up and seen Leah Freeman and was able to describe her in a way that didn't come from the press accounts. So they had been able to basically go like this guy definitely saw her that made it more complicated for MacGuffin to be there. Now on top of that, there was a witness at the trial who stated he saw MacGuffin and Leah together at the ATM, but nothing was able to put uh, Lindegren or something like that was the guy's name. Um, but nothing was able to uh, put MacGuffin anywhere close to her. Um, that that It's more than just DNA is my point. Like There were several pieces that seemed off. And it looks like, I mean, they just withheld some exculpatory parts, which, you know, yeah. has been very clearly ruled on in the court uh, system that they can't do that, right? Correct, yeah. They have violent. to give over everything, uh, you know, especially exculpatory things, because, you know, if you're a prosecutor and you're just looking to, um, you know, win a case... And you're like, well, I don't need to give this information that we have that shows that this person didn't do it to the defense. Well, I mean, they, you know, that's obviously a thing that has been decided and they have to give it to them. So my, that was going to be my question was how much of a factor did the, the unknown DNA being found in the shoes play in the overturning of his conviction? There were several things there that led to it. Uh, the judge that ruled on it is a judge named Patricia Sullivan. She she didn't see that as being the only factor. She saw the prosecution covering it up as a factor and covering up some of the other things. She saw enough there that she ordered a new trial, but she also sort of, in her ruling, eviscerated the prosecution's previous case. And that is what you know sort of drags it down this rabbit hole where we don't know the results yet. So... Hopefully we'll know a little more soon. Do you have any more on this one? I kind of drug this out for a long episode. Sorry about that. No, I mean, it, it was an interesting story to kind of learn about and really does make you um, want to reconsider, you know, a lot of things. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time.